The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 6, 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, before we jump into this text, let me pray for us and get our hearts and our minds in the right place. Father, we, we just admit right now that we need instruction. We need wisdom from outside of ourselves. We need um, the knowledge that only you have. That we live in a world that's anxious. We live in a world that's full of trouble, full of turmoil and fear. It's hard to decipher what is true and what is not. What's, it's hard to decipher between fact and opinion. And that creates just an anxious system that we all live in and wreaks a lot of havoc in our souls. And so I ask that you would cut through all the noise today and speak a really clear word that would bring flourishing to our life. Would you use me and you think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords? Would it be all of you and none of me? Would you help us this morning? Would your sheep, as you say, Jesus, would your sheep hear your voice and a voice of another they would not follow? I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We can open up your Bibles to Matthew 6. We are continuing our study through Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. This whole sermon is about how the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. It's not just a ticket to heaven. The gospel changes what we believe. It changes what we love. It changes how we think. And then it changes how we behave. Pretty much in that order. The gospel works from the inside out, okay? So it changes our internal life and then it leads to outward changes. We've talked before the last few weeks about orthodoxy, having right beliefs and those changes on the inside and then orthopraxy, having right practice. Both things are important. If we wanna flourish in life, we need right beliefs, right doctrine and right, right praxis, right obedience, okay? We need faith, and works. So what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, when you get those two things together, faith and works, this is what the Christian life looks like in the kingdom of God. It's a life that flourishes, okay? It's a life that's doing well in all seasons of life. And last week we learned that one of the ways the Christian life looks different, it looks different from those who are not followers of Christ, is how the Christian handles and deals with and relates to their money and their possessions. That Christians, as they believe the gospel and then they obey Jesus, they make consistent and sacrificial investments into eternity. What Jesus called the treasures in heaven. While we give to God's mission, we're investing in heaven. While non-Christians only invest in, quote unquote, treasures on earth. That's what Jesus said. He said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Meaning, if we are investing in God and the things of God, our hearts will be in God and in eternal things. 
But if we're only investing in the things on this earth, our hearts, our loves, our souls, our desires will only be in the things in this earth. If you missed the sermon last week, you can always find the podcast on our website. I give that quick recap this morning because today's topic is predicated upon what Jesus taught us last week and actually the last few weeks. It's a sermon. He's moving through the sermon and every point is building upon the last. Let me show you Jesus' flow of thought here. If you are living for the things of this world, okay, fame, possessions, security, you will invest your life and your soul into those things. By definition, that is called materialism. Living for the material things. Living for things that are temporary. Your time, listen, all your treasure, that's what it means. Your time, your effort, your thought, your education, your love, everything will be directed and invested into things on this earth. Jesus said, where you're investing, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So follow this thought. If you live for the things of this world, your heart and soul and emotions will be in the things of this world. That is materialism. Now here's the problem. You are an eternal being. You were created by God as an eternal soul that will live forever somewhere. Scripture tells us God has placed eternity in the human heart. So here's the problem. You were created to live forever and yet you're consistently making investments in the things of this world that are subject to loss, decay, destruction, and death. Maybe even your life and your soul is placed into those things. Do you see the problem here? If our hearts are where our treasure is, and our treasure is in the things of this world, and the things of this world are subject to loss and decay, we will be chronically anxious people as we watch those things slip through our fingers. It's inevitable. By definition, that is an anxious system that produces anxiety for anyone who lives within it. Materialism creates anxiety. And then it tells you to solve your anxiety by getting more stuff. It's an addictive, anxious cycle. Now, not all anxiety is a result of our materialism. There's clinical anxiety. There's different things that sometimes just break physically in us. I'm not talking about those things. But much of what we deal in a day-in, day-out reality of, with anxiety, much of that is actually caused by our materialism, our investing our hearts into the things of this earth. I want you to think about something for a moment. If you take a look at our American culture, you see two things going on at the same time. On one hand, you've got amazing scientific and technological advancement. From this point of view, it really seems like humanity and our culture is just going up and to the right. It's getting better and better and better. But on the other hand, with all of this scientific advancement, right now, we are more anxious, stressed, and depressed than ever before in human history. The CDC says that 40% of Americans are currently struggling with mental health issues and substance abuse. Four out of 10 of us right now. Now you might say, well, that's just because of COVID-19. It's unprecedented. Well, let's think about that for a minute. It is unprecedented in our lifetime. But there have been far greater and far worse pandemics throughout human history. 
And back then, there was really nothing to do, nothing to hope in other than just grin and bear it. There was no just wait for a vaccine. The Black Plague killed between 75 and 100 million people. And history tells us that the Church of Jesus Christ thrived during that pandemic and had a non-anxious presence. They lived differently. They were peaceful in the midst where everybody else's hair was on fire. And literally some of them were throwing their children out in the streets, afraid of being infected themselves. The Christians were scooping up those infected children, bringing them into their home and trusting God to work all things out. Think about that. With all of our medical advancement, We've seen that this year. It's been, it's modern, modern miracle. We can't, we've got a first time in human history, a vaccine in the midst of a pandemic within a year. It's a spectacular achievement. Shouldn't we be far less anxious than people who went through pandemics before us who had no such hope? But that's not the case, is it? Why is that? Our modern society has not equipped us with the tools and the worldview necessary to deal with the real world, which produces anxiety. Now, why is that? Because our entire worldview is based on scientific materialism, and scientific materialism is an incomplete worldview that is unlivable in the real world. Our souls weren't made to live in that kind of scientific materialistic universe. Now, what does that mean? Here's what, in just everyday language, this is what scientific materialism, I know we don't talk about that in our day-to-day life. That sounds like big words that are put together there. Here's what it means. This is all there is, and it's all up to you. Two premises to scientific materialism. This is all there is, and it's all up to you. If you want to understand what this worldview feels like, you can go to Netflix right now and you can watch George Clooney's new movie, The Midnight Sky. I won't spoil it for you. Perfect depiction, it's a good movie too, perfect depiction of scientific materialism. Here's the two premises. This is all there is means the purpose And meaning of your life is to be found right here, right? This is all there is. Second premise, it's all up to us, means just what it says. Your success, your health, your wealth, your happiness, your flourishing is 100% dependent upon you. Your future success is 100% dependent on, on you. It's all on your shoulders, Here it is. That worldview creates anxiety. And it doesn't just create anxiety, it amplifies anxiety. It puts anxiety on steroids. If this world is all there is, I realize I only have a limited time to enjoy it. Could be 16 years, could be 106 years but I only have a limited time to enjoy it, to earn it, to experience it. And that all rests on me in my effort. That puts the soul under an extreme amount of pressure to figure everything out, to accumulate as much as I can, to protect as much as I can, to keep the wolves at bay, to experience and succeed all on my own, to figure out the future, It puts the soul under an immense amount of pressure and that creates anxiety. This is the worldview that's being pumped to our children through their education, through every movie we watch, through all the songs. It's an anxiety-producing worldview, right? Just think of like climate change and that whole thing, right? Here it is. You, we're here all alone. There is no God It's all up to us. We've got the earth. We've ruined the earth. We're gonna die either by, we're gonna burn up or we're gonna freeze. Pick one. We don't know yet, but it's coming, right? Elon Musk is, I'm going to Mars. That's his, he's populating Mars. So he just gave up. He's gone, he's gone, 
right? We're like, oh, that's one of our best. See you, dude. He's gone, right? And then, now just think about that worldview. I came from nowhere. I was born onto this planet. It's all going to hell in a handbasket, literally. There is no hope for the future. Remember that old American dream of like the white house and the white picket fence and the fam? Why would I even raise babies on this planet if it's all going to burn up anyways, right? That is an anxiety producing system. And then somebody has the audacity to tell us, go have a good life. You know, find a good career and get married and have, wait, if your worldview is true, I can't have a good life. The only way I could have a good life in your worldview is to act like your worldview isn't true. And that's what most people do. Most people practically have that worldview, but then they realize that it's depressing, it's anxiety producing, it's, there's no hope in it, so they borrow some things from Christianity. And they try to live in both worlds. We live in an anxious system. Our society is built on anxiety. We know this, right? If I can get you afraid, I can get you to vote. If I can get you afraid, I can get you to buy things to supposedly heal your anxiety, right? More toilet paper, did that work, right? If I get you anxious about your looks, you spend money on your looks. We live in a society that's meant to make us anxious. And in this world, Jesus steps into. The son of God, the prince of peace, the king of heaven steps into this anxious world. And he has a thing or two to teach us about anxiety. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of this world. Hear that. In the beginning was God. Jesus was with God. He was the word of God. He spoke creation into existence. That's the Christian worldview. We did not come from nothing. You have to be educated far beyond your common sense to believe that something somehow came from nothing back then, even though something never comes from nothing now. Even though that can never be scientifically reproduced, somehow we believe that if you got enough PhDs behind your name. Right? No, Jesus says, I was there. I spoke creation into existence. I am the uncreated creator. And now I am holding all things in my hands. I am sustaining all things right now. Hebrews 1.3 says this, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, Christianity believes that Jesus created the world and Jesus is intimately connected to the world right now, sustaining us, holding us, keeping us, preparing us, protecting us, watching over us. He's intimately involved in creation. Some people believe that God created everything and he wound it up like a watch he set all the laws of nature in motion and then God kind of steps away and lets nature do what nature does. And God's kind of away watching just kind of from a distance from, cre from creation. He's not intimately involved in it. That's not what Christianity believes. That's called deism. And deism produces just as much anxiety as scientific materialism because deism says, well, God created everything and he gave us everything, but now it's up to you to figure it out. Now it's up to you to make things happen. So God's out there and he's real, but we got to figure it all out right now. Creates, ju creates just as much anxiety. But Jesus teaches something different. Jesus, the uncreated creator, becomes man and enters his creation. He does this first and foremost to save us from our sins, but he also does this to show us how to live in this anxious, real world that's been affected by sin. That said, Jesus knows anxiety. Jesus had a sinful parent. Jesus had sinful brothers. Jesus lived in a community that was broken. 
It was racial, termino, uh, racial uh, animosity during Jesus' time, religious animosity, financial animosity. He was governed by Rome, subjugated by Rome. Jesus knows what it feels like to live in an anxious system. He knows what produces anxiety, and he also knows what cures anxiety. And if you're struggling with anxiety in your life, you need to hear the words of Jesus this morning. And we will see Jesus' prescription for anxiety is not just a simple, don't worry, be happy. Nor is it fatalistic like much of scientific materialism that says, this is just the way things are and you're gonna have to suffer until someday we'll find a cure. Now Jesus gives us some real helpful things that we can do to fight anxiety in our lives until he comes back to make all things new. I've laid the three things out like this. Here's what Jesus tells us to do. One, redirect your gaze. Two, reassess your heart. And three, reorder your ambition. That's my outline this morning. And uh, we're gonna jump right into our text. Let's look uh, right away. I want us to, let's just go. Uh, how do I wanna do this here? Let's just read it. Verse 25, open up your Bible. Let's go there. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I want to jump down to the last verse, verse, 30, or verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The first thing I want you to see here is that Jesus teaches us that anxiety primarily comes from our desire to control the future. In our text, they've got food, they've got water, they've got clothes, clothes but what are they worried about? Tomorrow's food, tomorrow's water, tomorrow's mortgage payment. It's tomorrow, worry, anxiety is typically tomorrow focused. Jesus tells us three times, do not be anxious about tomorrow. See, anxiety is tomorrow focused. Now again, scientific materialism makes sense of this. It says, this is all there is and it's all up to you. So you better go out there and figure out the future. If you're gonna protect yours and protect those that you love, you have to figure out the future. You got to get your hands out there. You got to figure out what's coming down the pipe. And that goes completely against Jesus here. Jesus doesn't teach that it's all up to us because if it's all up to us, we have to be really worried about the future. So the first thing Jesus teaches us here is that the essence of anxiety is the desire to control that which we can't control, namely the future. Now, it's been often said that worrying today or being anxious today doesn't empty tomorrow of its trouble. It just empties today of its strength. So as I worry today, my body typically has a physiological response. I get stressed out. I get headaches. I get back pains. And what does that do? That makes me less prepared to handle the real situation I'm going to step into tomorrow, right? So that's in one way, that's at, what worry and anxiety does is asks for tomorrow's grace today. Well, he's never going to give us tomorrow's grace today. He gives us today's grace today. Jesus contradicts the dominant worldview of our culture. And he says, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour? That narrative goes against a lot of our culture right now. A lot of the media that wants us to be really anxious about adding an hour to our life or adding an hour to somebody else's life goes against the whole swath of the population that's really anxious about the future and so they're stockpiling everything they can get their hands on. 
Jesus says, which of you by being anxious can add one hour to your life? The question is none of us. If God is in control, then nothing we can do can stay his plan or stay his hand. Anxiety is not a fruit of the spirit. Anxiety is a fruit of materialism, a materialistic worldview. We believe that this is all there is and it's up to us to earn it, enjoy it, and protect our future. And this worldview has even infiltrated the church of Jesus Christ. Many of us, we believe in Jesus, but we don't believe Jesus. We believe in him as a historical person who came and lived the life that we failed to live and died the death that we deserve. We believe in him as our savior, but we don't believe him when it comes to how to live our daily life. This sermon series isn't just about believing in Jesus. It's about believing Jesus and practicing the way of Jesus, following his way of life. And that is one reason why so many people who claim to be Christians are just as anxious as people who don't follow Jesus. We are believing in Jesus, but we're not believing Jesus and practicing his way. Jesus shows us what the flourishing life looks like and you can't flourish and be anxious. Too many people claim Jesus as their savior, but they're still investing their life in the things of the world and trusting in their power to control the future. If that's how you're living, you might be a Christian, you might be saved, but you are not going to live the flourishing life that Jesus has for you, the life that's blessed, a life of faith, that isn't ruled by anxiety about the future. So that's rough definition of what anxiety is. Let's see what Jesus prescribes to fight against it. Three things. First thing Jesus tells us to do is redirect our gaze. Redirect our gaze. Look at verses 26 and then 28 through 30. 26. Look. Okay, right away, redirect our gaze. Get your eyes off one thing, put your eyes on something else. Well, what does he tell us to look at? Look at the birds. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider, again, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the flowers, how they grow. They don't toil or spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not erased like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? What is Jesus doing here? First thing Jesus prescribes for those who are struggling with anxiety Take a walk outside and redirect your gaze. Now, this is not some kind of hippie nature therapy, okay? I know this is what everybody tells you to do on YouTube too if you're looking up stuff like that. This isn't that. Listen, I love to hike. I love to climb. I love to mountain bike. I love to get outside and let my mind and my body unravel in nature. That's a great experience. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He's prescribing much more than that. Jesus is saying, look in nature and look how it works. Okay? Look at the birds. You don't see anxious birds. Right? An anxious bird waking up in the morning, worried if it's going to find its food today. What do birds do? Birds just, they bird, man. I don't know <laughs> what they do, but they bird, right? They're not worried. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm old, I'm, I'm old enough that I have a bird feeder, okay? I'm old enough, I've reached that level. I'm old enough that I have a bird feeder. No, no, I'm old enough that I have a bird feeder and I enjoy it, 
that's how old I am. But I'm not a very consistent bird feeder, okay? When I go to the store and I remember it, I buy it. Sometimes I don't, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But what I know is when I fill it up, the birds show up. And when it runs out, they don't. And when I fill it up, they show up again. I've never seen them sitting there like, starving, right? Their needs are taken care of somewhere. And guess what the, Jesus says? Their father in heaven is taking care of them. This is what Jesus is saying. Saying, look at the, look at the flowers. Flowers are not freaked out trying to be beautiful, right? <laughs> we are probably the only thing that feels like we need injections to be more beautiful. Flowers just flowering, not stressed out. I've only got six more days. Winter's coming, right? Flowers are just chilling, beautiful, arrayed all across mountaintops. But Jesus is saying it's not just a work of scientific materialism that, or a deistic reality that God wound this thing up and set it away. No, he says your father in heaven is intimately connected with his creation in such a way he's feeding the birds. He's raising up the flowers. He's sending the sun. He's sending the wind. He's sending the rain. God is active in his world and that activity is called the providence of God. Jesus is saying, look and consider providence. Now, providence, we get two words from providence. One, provide, and two, provision. Provision is talking about being able to see the future, see all ends, see everything. Provide, meet every need that needs to be met. God is providential. He has providence. He takes care of everything. He meets every need. He's got everything figured out from the nth degree. God feeds everything. God clothes everything. God is governing all things. And here it is. Here's what he wants, Jesus wants you to see. If God will do it for the sparrows, he'll do it for you because you mean more to him than the animals. Sorry if you're a vegan. It's true. God loves us more than the animals. We were made in his image. And he says, look at the birds. He takes care of them. Won't he much more take care of you? Hear that, Christian. Reject the worldview in our culture. You are not alone. You are not here to figure this out on your own. You are not here to make something of yourself by yourself. You are not here to fix the world. You are not here to control the future. God is in control and God loves you and God cares for you and he will take care of you. He does it for the birds and the flowers and he loves you more than them. Now, I think we don't think enough about the providence of God. It's not even a word we use very often. And if you follow, I hope you do. If you follow, we, I, I put out a podcast every week called Sacred City Life Podcast. We work through theology, work through everyday stuff. And this last week we did a podcast on providence of God. And we've got two more coming up this week. So I encourage you, go back, fill yourself up, understand the providence of God. Listen, as I was studying this week, I came across this letter from a Civil War soldier written to his wife. He was on the eve of battle. And listen how he wrote home to her. Quote, my beloved wife, Providence has brought me to this point in my life. And he capitalized providence. He uses the word providence as another word for God himself. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He capitalizes providence. Let me read it. Providence has brought me to this point in my life. And I know not what providence has in store for me tomorrow. And if it should be according to providence that I not survive the morrow, I will entrust the care of you and of the children to that same benevolent providence. I can't think of a more anxious time in a person's life than on the eve of a battle. Especially during the Civil War when you were about to line up and charge the enemy with bayonets and muskets and archaic medicine at the best to help you out. 
absolute chaos. But you hear no anxiety in this letter. You hear no nervous hand-wringing. You hear no fearful fretting about the future and what's his wife gonna do and what's the kids gonna do and what does that mean for all the things. And you don't hear any of that. You hear a solid faith in the God of providence. One of the reasons we struggle with anxiety is because we have divorced this world from its creator and sustainer in our daily life. So again, we believe in Jesus, but we don't believe in providence. We don't believe we can trust God with everything, including our future. The first thing Jesus says to do to fight anxiety, redirect your vision to the providence of God. Nothing in this world is outside of his control. Everything from every sparrow that falls from the sky to every hair that falls off your head, he's got them all numbered. You can't add a single hour to your day. If you believe that, think about how peaceful of a presence you would have in this world. Second thing Jesus tells us to do to fight anxiety is to reassess our heart. Another way of saying that is reassess your faith commitments. Reassess what you're putting your faith in, what you're trusting in. Jesus says to the one who's eaten up with anxiety, he says this, oh, you of little faith. What does that mean? Here it is. Oh, you who have little faith in the providence of God because you have big faith in your own self, to figure out the future. As we increase our faith in ourself, we have little faith in God. We don't need God. We're going to figure it out on our own. Guess what happens? Our anxiety rises. It's a pressurized system. And as the more faith we have in ourself and in our ability to control the future, the more anxiety that's going to produce in us. So when anxiety begins to strike in our life, and maybe we just feel it in a raised heartbeat, maybe we feel it in stress, maybe we feel it in anger, a shortness of temper, maybe we we just get tight in the back, we get tight in the neck, we can't sleep, we start worrying about the future, we should reassess our hearts and ask ourselves, what am I trusting in right now for my security? Remember, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If my heart is in my ability to control my future health, wealth, and prosperity, I will be anxious as those things come under threat of rust, decay, theft, loss, and of course, death. But if my faith is in the providence of God, I will be a non-anxious presence even in the midst of difficulty and suffering. Again, this is not some kind of Christianity turns a blind eye to the real world and we just tiptoe through the tulips thinking about heaven someday. Listen how Peter says it in 1 Peter 4.19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's all in that one little verse. We're going to experience suffering. We're going to experience difficulty. That is God's will for us. But we can do that while entrusting our souls, our eternal life, our mind, our will, our emotions, the inward part of us, our heart. We can suffer, go through difficulty while trusting our souls to a faithful creator, while doing good. We can be a peaceful, prophetic presence in the midst of chaos. We can walk through a very anxious system and a very anxious society and a very anxious season, and we can have a peace that other people don't have because we trust our creator and our provider, God. 
So redirect your gaze onto the providence of God. Reassess your faith commitments. Put your faith in the providence of God and not in your own works. And last thing Jesus tells us to do to fight anxiety is to reorder our ambition. If you know any verse from this section of scripture, it's probably this one. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus tries to reorder our ambition. He says, in a sense, you seek my kingdom, I take care of you. All these things will be added to you. You seek first God's kingdom. Reorder your ambition. That means our first priority should be God's kingdom and his righteousness, not building our own kingdom and doing things our own way. One of the reasons we struggle with anxiety so much is because of our own selfish ambition that our whole life is revolving around us. We have been taught since childhood that the only purpose in life is to make a kingdom for ourselves. Our parents taught us to obey the rules and go to school and choose a career. And almost all of that wasn't about many of us. It wasn't about pursuing God's good in the world. It wasn't about building the kingdom of God. It was about grow up, make more money than I do, live in a better neighborhood than I do, create a little kingdom of your own that can be insulated from the troubles of the world. And we've bought into that. And many of us are frustrated by it. We've been serving a, the kingdom of the self and we wonder why we're so anxious in it. Maybe we've even achieved it. We've got a bigger house than mom and dad did. We've got a better bank account than mom and dad did. We drive nicer cars, have nicer vacations. And yet we, we have anxiety that won't go away. There's five reasons why the kingdom of the self produces anxiety. One, it's self-focused. Two, it's self-righteous. Three, it's self-satisfied. Four, it's self-reliant. Five, it's self-ruled. You're the kingdom. You're the king of your kingdom, but you're an anxious king. So everything you create is just ripe with anxiety. How, well, how, do, how do I know if I'm self-focused? Do you, before you make a decision, do you think, what's, what's in this for me? What am I going to get out of this? Or do you freely sacrifice for the good of another without expecting a return? How do you know if you're self-righteous? Are you more concerned with the sin and weakness and moral failures of others than you are your own? Jesus said, you have a speck of sawdust in your, or you're picking out the speck of sawdust in your neighbor's eye while you have a log sticking out of yours. Don't talk about my moral failures. Look at that, guys. How do you know if you're self-satisfied? Do you feel regularly discontent, always looking for something new to satisfy you instead of being satisfied and content with a God-honoring life? How do you know if you're self-reliant? Do you avoid living in intrusive and intentional relationships where others admit their need for grace and seek the help of biblical community? See, one of the, one of the goals of an American society is to build a kingdom of a, the self where you don't need anybody and nobody can get inside the walls of your kingdom. Lastly, how do you know if you're a self-ruler? Think about it. Which, which law 
gets the most attention and the quickest response in your life and in your relationships? The word of God or your desires? The kingdom of the self is an anxious kingdom. We can't serve ourself and want to live in peace and want to flourish as human beings. The kingdom of the self is ruled by anxiety. Now listen, the kingdom of God is ruled by Jesus. That is really good news for us this morning. My kids aren't very anxious kids most of the time. Sometimes I get frustrated by that. I'm, I'm freaking out. I need some respect to allow me to freak out for a moment. Don't come around me with your toys wanting to play. I'm thinking about paying the bills. I'm thinking about your college education, kid. I'm worried right now. My kid's just bouncing in. Hey, let's have fun, right? Now listen. One, they're a child. That's good. Two, they have confidence in their father. They've never missed a meal in their life, right? When they've said, my, when they've torn their jeans, they've got new jeans. When they went out, grew out of the shoes, they got new shoes. Their needs have constantly been met all through their life so far. And so they have a reliance upon my rule in this, my little kingdom, right? And that gives them a peace. Well, that same reality works in the spiritual world. Jesus says, come to me like little children. We come to him. He's the king of all kings. He has all authority. His kingdom is, he rules his kingdom. And if he is who he says he is, me as his child should have absolute confidence in him and his provision for the future. Jesus is a warrior savior who rescues us from the kingdom of the self and he delivers us into the kingdom of God. Literally, we're fools trying to build our own kingdom, investing our lives in the things of this world, ignoring him and he comes down as we were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, picks us up on the battlefield, throws us over his shoulder, brings us into the kingdom of God, puts us down, breathes the spirit into us, gives us new life and now we're living in his kingdom. The problem is many times our minds are still back in the kingdom of the self. Completely forgetting about how he's taking care of all of our needs and salvation. How Jesus has paid the debt for every self-centered motive, word, deed, and action that we prioritize over him and his kingdom, that Jesus on the cross broke the powers to the kingdom of the self, that Jesus through the spirit gives us grace every single day for the battle that exists as we live in this world between these two kingdoms. And that Jesus purchased for us power through the spirit and with his resurrection that he guarantees that someday this conflict that we're in will be over. He's going to deliver the kingdom of God to us and that conflict between the two kingdoms will be over. The kingdom of the self will be ultimately destroyed. That means when you understand what Jesus has done for us, when he that image I just gave, you picked us up dead on the battlefield, brought us in, breathed new life in us, put us into his eternal kingdom, empowers us with his spirit to live right now in this fallen world. Jesus has purchased for us a peace that passes all understanding. Listen how he says it in Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why does it need to guard it? Because we're in the battle here. 
We're living between Jesus's first coming and Jesus's second coming where the kingdom of the self and the kingdom of God are both operating in our daily life, right? We feel that pull back and forth. And so we need the peace of God to guard our hearts and guard our minds in Christ Jesus. Give us grace that we need for the battle. I love this, that Jesus doesn't act like if you've got your head in the clouds, you can just skip through life and everything's gonna be easy. No, we need to have a wartime mentality right now. I don't think, I, I really can't think of anything our world needs more right now than non-anxious Christians. Christians who have a quiet confidence in the providence of God. When everyone else is running around with their hair on fire, hmm, I'd do that too if I didn't believe in providence. That makes really sense if you have a scientific materialistic worldview. That's not my worldview. I believe God knows the exact day of my death. I believe that God holds all of eternity in his hand. He has every end figured out. I believe the kingdom of God is absolutely certain. The new heavens and the new earth are certain and nothing I can do today can stop that from coming or even make it come. The kingdom of God comes through the work of Jesus, not through the work of man. And so that gives me a quiet confidence and a peaceful, prophetic presence today. So, as we think about this, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, let us repent and turn from our self-made anxious kingdoms and come with open hands to the Lord's table this morning to receive his peace that passes all understanding. Jesus, think about this, on the night that he was betrayed, he knew the future. He's sitting across the table from Judas who just betrayed him for 20 pieces of silver and Jesus isn't freaking out. He's not gritting his teeth. He's not spiking the wine, right? Poisoning his enemies. He's looking across from him and saying, this bread, this is my body broken for you. This cup, this cup of wine, this is my blood that's spilled for you. This is the cup of the new covenant. Jesus in the face of his betrayal, his torture, and his crucifixion, had a quiet confidence in the providence of God. And it gave him a peace that passes understanding. I pray that you would come with your open hands today and he would give you that same confidence. I ask you to do this for your glory and our good, Jesus. Amen.